You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'd like to welcome you back for the third of our lectures on human nature. And I gave a brief advertisement there at the end of the second lecture for what was coming up. And I will try to hit the highlights of Aristotle's De Anima. And we'll note that that work peaks with a discussion of the peculiar capacities of the human soul, especially when it comes to understanding. And that will provide a lead-in to a discussion of human knowledge and then human freedom. And in the course of that, we will have occasion to come back and try and refine, to take up certain difficulties that seem to arise from the discussion of human nature itself, and especially the discussion of soul and body. Thus far, we have talked rather non-problematically about soul being to body, as form is to matter, as act is to potency. But we will see that when we are talking about the human composite of soul and body, certain peculiar claims are made, as I've already noted, about understanding. And these claims raise all sorts of difficulties about how we can properly understand the human soul to be the form of the body. And so that's sort of the telos toward which we are moving in this discussion of Aristotle's De Anima and then in the discussion of human knowledge. And human freedom will come in there as well toward the end of these series of lectures. I want to make four points about the De Anima. It's not a huge work by Aristotle. It is quite difficult in places. And I'm going to attempt to pull out of that work what I take to be the most important teachings. We'll have occasion to go over these more when we look at Aquinas' own writings on human knowledge and on freedom and on the relation between soul and body. But I want to sort of take out of that discussion of the De Anima what I take to be the most important points by way of introduction to the study of human nature properly. The first point that I want to discuss has to do with Aristotle's definition of soul. And he defines it as the first act, or actuality, to be more precise, of a natural, organic body potentially having life. There's a technical definition for you, and it may seem at this moment convoluted. Let's try over the next few minutes to clarify the most important features of it. Let's start with the first two words, a first actuality. We have said thus far that soul is the body as act is to potency. So there's something appropriate about Aristotle talking about the soul as an actuality. But why first actuality? Well, there are different sorts of actualities for souls, for bodies that are in soul informed. There is the actuality of a specific power of the soul, right? So I might simply exercise my capacity to write on the board, which I just did. That's an actuality of a sort. I have made something that was potential, my writing on the board, into something that's actual by, in fact, writing on the board. So Aristotle says first actuality, to talk about this as the primary actuality of the thing. You might say makes the thing be as a particular kind of thing. Not the actuality of the particular operations or activities of the thing. Those are called second actualities. And notice that I speak in the plural of second actualities and in the singular of the first actuality, right? Because there are manifold actualities that are second to this first one, right? This first one is 
the soul, informing a body, making it be a particular human being, making it be a particular plant or a particular tree or a particular dog. It's the first actuality. Aristotle gives the following analogy, and it is only an analogy. But he says, compare these two sorts of actualities. Compare my coming to know something for the first time so that I actually come to possess the knowledge. Right? So whereas before, there was merely a potential knower of this specific body or aspect of knowledge, and now there is an actual knower. Now, once I possess that knowledge, I can recall it. Right? So if I have learned this definition of the soul from Aristotle, and memorized it and gone beyond that to understand its parts and how it is an appropriate definition of the soul, I can at some later date actually entertain that piece of knowledge. I can say, oh, I can explain it to someone else, for instance. That's a different sort of actuality. That's the actuality of something already possessed that I can then bring to bear in some way in this particular moment. But that first actuality is that initial moving from potency to act, without which I would not be a knower with respect to this. And then at later times, I can, on various occasions, exercise or bring into act, focus on that piece of knowledge that I had learned at some previous time. That's a sort of second actuality. This is an analogy again, right? because it's not, strictly speaking, that initial knowledge that I have, that act of coming to know something, is not a first actuality in this sense. But it's prior. It's what makes something move from potency to act. And afterward, there are subsequent actualities that can occur that are called second actualities. So the first actuality. It's what makes this thing be. Without it, the matter would simply be potential. Once it's organized by the form, it is. So that's the first actuality of the thing, the soul. Now this part, it's a natural organic body. Natural as opposed to artificial. We can have artificial things which have forms, but they don't have souls. They're not alive. And that again is all that we mean initially here when we're talking about souls. It's the principle of life, not some mysterious spirit or something hovering around things or within them deep within their recesses. It is simply the principle of life. So we're talking about natural bodies, not artificial bodies. Organic. Aristotle adds this after an initial definition where he leaves it out. Then he says, all right, well, we should add the word organic. Now, what he means by that is it has various organs which serve or perform diverse functions. And this is appropriate to the complexity of these natural things. Which natural things? Namely, living things. Because a complexity of operations, a complexity of organs and powers, is necessary in order for things to live, even the simplest things. There is some sort of minimal complexity there. And so there are organs that we speak of, capacities that things have, that serve certain functions. All right, so it's a first actuality, talking about a natural, organic body, potentially having life. Right? That describes the body. What sort of body are we talking about? We're not talking about a body that already is alive. Right? Because if it already were alive, it would already have an actuality. So when we talk about the soul, we talk about it as the act of a body that is potentially alive. It's made alive by being informed by the soul. So it potentially has life. It is made living by the presence of the soul, by being informed by the soul. So this is the definition. And Aristotle argues, and Aquinas follows him, that this definition of soul holds for all living things. So all the way up to human beings and all the way down to the least complex sorts of living things. This is Aristotle's definition. And it's important to keep that definition in mind when we come later to this difficulty about human beings. Because the human soul is this, it namely is the first actuality of a natural organic body, 
potentially having life, namely for me, this body, right, which is now actually alive by virtue of the soul informing it, organizing it, vivifying it. And yet, the human soul, at least in one of its capacities, the capacity of knowledge, seems to reach beyond the body, seems to have an activity in which the body doesn't share, as Aristotle and Aquinas put it. And that raises questions about whether this definition applies in the same way to, say, plants, animals, and human beings. The second point that I want to address briefly about Aristotle's De Anima is this issue of method. Aristotle will claim that we come to know the human soul in the same way that we come to know the souls of other natural things, the forms of other natural things. How do we do that? Well, remember Descartes, right? When we talked about Descartes doubting all of his external experience, indeed doubting that he had a body or was a body. And Descartes claimed that the thing that was most immediately evident to him, and certainly most indubitable, was his own thinking. I think, therefore I am. And then he goes on to say, what am I? I'm a thinking thing. And so the claim is in Descartes that we have some sort of immediate introspective, non-derivative access to our own minds, to our own ego, right? the, the I, the self, the consciousness. We have some unmediated access to this. Aristotle denies this. And this is an absolutely crucial denial on Aristotle's part. Aristotle says instead that the method for coming to understand what things are is from the objects to the activities to the powers and then from that to the essence. That is the nature of the thing. You should be able to see here why it is that Aristotle and Aquinas hold that the essential natures of things are, as it were, hidden or veiled at least. These are not the first things that we know. What is most at work in a thing, what its basic causes are. Rather, what we know first of all is that there are certain things being pursued by a certain species in certain ways, by means of certain powers, and that this reveals something about what the essence is. In contrast to Descartes, who holds that we have some sort of immediate introspective evidence or access to what we are, essentially, namely a sort of private I, a self, a mind, an intellect. In fact, Aristotle argues that we've got to move in the opposite direction. We've got to start from the objects that we pursue as human beings. Right? What sort of things are we about? Well, if you simply go up the big scale of being that Aristotle gives us, as it were, in the Dianima, the scale of soul, actually, rather than a scale of being, there is the vegetative capacity that plants have only. And above that, there is a capacity of sensation, which animals have. Animals also have the vegetative capacity. And above that, there is a human power of understanding, and humans also have the vegetative capacities and the sensitive capacities. Now, how do we know about this? Well, we study things, we see what plants pursue. Well, what are plants primarily about? Well, taking nutriment and water into themselves and developing on that basis. Their capacities are circumscribed to the activities and the powers appropriate to the kinds of things that they are. So we look at what sort of objects, nutriment, water, sunlight, right, that plants take in. We have very complicated ways of talking about these things in modern science that certainly Aristotle, of course, did not have. But we see which objects these things are engaging with in the world. What are the activities that are ordered to these objects? So we can talk about how it is that plants take in nutriment, how it is that they're affected or not affected by sunlight. And indeed, these are the activities that are ordered to these objects. Then we can talk about what kinds of powers do they have, what kinds of capacities, and moving up to animals and human beings at the peak of the animal kingdom. 
So Aristotle's view on this is we start out with things in the world and we look at how particular species and substances engage with those things. What sort of objects do they pursue? What sort of things are they ordered to? These are activities that are focused on objects and they are powers that make possible these activities in relation to these objects. And finally, if we get this far, we can say, well, what sort of thing is it that has this peculiar constellation of powers ordered to this peculiar constellation of activities and objects? So that we move, as it were, from the outward to the inward, rather than starting simply in the private self and moving out then. Notice that this means there's a common method, for, just as there's a common definition of soul for plants, animals, and human beings, there's a common method for studying plants, animals, and human beings. See what are the peculiar objects that they're engaged with in the world. What are the activities that they perform in relation to these objects? What are the powers that make these activities possible? And how does this flow from, reveal the natures of the thing, its essence? Very important. So we don't start with a kind of introspective, in my mind sort of view and work outward. And indeed, Aristotle will do this when he gets to that knowledge. What would be the object of knowledge? What are the activities and powers the human intellect? must have. What sort of activities does it have and what sort of power is it that enables it to engage with these objects in the way that it does. So we work, as it were, from the world backward. There is one exception to this which has to do with human knowledge. That is something of a concession, I guess, to Descartes here on Aquinas' part, in that he will say we do have some general, vague, initial knowledge that we have an intellectual soul from the fact that we know ourselves to be thinking or understanding or inquiring. And so there is a kind of immediate or nearly immediate, one might say, apprehension that I experience myself in this way. And that's not merely, obviously, external. I don't have to go out of myself in order to experience that. But I do, for Aristotle and for Aquinas, have to be thinking about something. I can't just think about thinking. Thinking is always of some object. And so even there, when we get to thinking, there's a sense or experience that I have that I'm engaging in thought. I know I'm aware of this at the moment that I'm doing it, even as I'm talking at this moment. But notice, I am not directly, introspectively, immediately apprehending my intellect and its content. Indeed, for Aristotle and Aquinas, the intellect has no content until it knows things. And only by knowing things can it have this sort of concomitant awareness of itself as thinking, as knowing. So this means that human self-knowledge is always oblique and indirect. And it always is parasitic or dependent upon my knowing and interacting with the external world. And only in doing that can I know myself as a knower. I can't do what Descartes tries to do, according to Aristotle and Aquinas. I can't have an immediate introspective access to my own intellect, to my own mind. So this notion of method is absolutely a crucial difference between Aquinas and Aristotle on the one hand, and someone like Descartes and all of his followers on the other. That's the second point from the De Anima. Okay, so now we've covered the first two points about Aristotle's De Anima, the definition of soul, and secondly, this issue of method. The third point, which will lead quite naturally into the fourth, has to do with the difference between sensation and understanding, or sense and intellect. So sense on the one hand, intellect on the other. We'll get into this in much more detail when we take up Aquinas' questions on the nature of human knowledge from the Summa Theologiae soon. Let me give just the overview of what the differences are here as Aristotle describes them. Sense apprehends the singular. Intellect apprehends the universal, the first contrast. 
The second one would be that each sensitive power, say sight or touch, is limited to a certain range of contraries. Right? So between hot and cold, or rough and smooth for touch. For sight, it would be between dark and light, white and black, limited to this set of contraries. Similarly with taste, right? sweet and bitter, sort of runs the gamut there. Whereas the intellect is not limited to any particular set of contraries. It's open, as Aristotle puts it, to all things. So sense is limited to each sensitive power is limited to its proper sensible objects, right? which is usually a set of contraries. So this gets at the very limited range of any particular power of sense versus the intellect, which is potentially all things. That is, in knowing, it becomes these things, a language that is a bit mysterious. We'll have occasion to talk about it in detail later. But there's an openness, you can think of it, in the range of things that the mind or the intellect encounters that is not there in sense. Sense is limited to each sensitive power is limited. Another way to put this is that sense apprehends accidents. Something's hot or it's cold. It's rough or it's smooth. It's blue or yellow. Whereas the intellect apprehends the essence. Now it's true that sensation operating in conjunction with the intellect, we certainly learn to identify things by its accidents, right? So we learn to identify water in its pristine form as being pure, wet, etc., right, by certain accidents. But there's a difference, as Aristotle puts it, between sensing that something's water, right, even to make that judgment, the intellect's got to come in there, and saying not just sensing or experiencing water, but saying what it is to be water, what the essence of water is. I mean, we get that in modern science by talking about the chemical composition of water. Difference between that and the accidents that we sense, and some of these might be accidents that are what are sometimes called proper accidents, that is accidents that are true only of these sorts of things. But nonetheless, sense simply gets the accidents. It doesn't move to an account of what this thing is, whereas the intellect does. The last thing is that sense, you can compare it with the intellect, the intellect is self-reflective. In other words, any particular sensitive power, say of sight or of touch or of hearing, senses its appropriate object, sound, color, hot and cold, but it doesn't sense that it senses. We might know that we sense, but that's to bring the intellect in. Right? We have a kind of intellectual awareness that I am sensing something. Right? But the sensitive power itself doesn't have this sort of self-reflective capacity. It doesn't sense that it senses. It just senses. Whereas the intellect not only knows that it senses things, right, but knows that it knows. We've already talked about that briefly in what I described as this kind of concomitant awareness that I'm thinking. If I'm thinking about the particular subject that I'm talking about right now, which happens to be about the human intellect, I am concomitantly aware, as I'm thinking about it, that I am thinking. So there's this kind of self-reflective character to the intellect that isn't there in sense. And to move back up to this first one, which is perhaps the most important and underlies all the rest, it is that any sensitive power merely senses the singular. That is what is here and now before me. We can imagine things that we've sensed that are no longer here and now. When we're talking about directly sensing something, it is here and now. It is immediate. It is singular. Whereas knowledge, when we move, say, from simply experiencing the singular to saying what it is, we're moving to a universal account of what those things are. So when we go from encountering in some vague notion of this occurs when we all learn language, right? We kids initially get confused about 
dogs and horses, right? Ponies especially with dogs because of the size, right? So you learn gradually not merely to sense the particular things, but to move towards some kind of universal apprehension of what makes this thing be what it is. I mean, frequently, especially with kids, and sometimes for most of us for all of our lives, we never get beyond certain accidental things that tell us, oh, this is what makes this thing different from that. But that is, in a way, nonetheless, a movement toward a universal apprehension of what the thing is. So as I mentioned earlier with the accidents versus the essence, it's not just sensing water, but what it is to be water. What makes this instance of water, although different from this other instance, in many accidental respects, nonetheless enables us to say that this is the same sort of thing that I'm experiencing when I have a cup in the morning when I wake up and later after I go for a run and I get a jug of water and drink it. There are many different accidental conditions, individuating conditions as Aristotle and Aquinas call them, that make that first cup of water in the morning different from that jug of water later in the day. But nonetheless, I go beyond merely those accidental things to say what it is about water that makes this the same thing as that. Even though it's at a different time, it might taste slightly differently, I'm in a different setting, I'm drinking it out of a different sort of holder, etc. So I move from the singular to the universal, from the accidents to the essence. And the mind in this way is open to all things and is self-reflective. It is able, in a sense, to possess itself, possess its knowledge of things, right, by this reflection, this concomitant awareness of itself as knowing other things. Now, this, for Aristotle, is an indication that the intellect, while being similar to sensation in a number of ways, first of all, both of them are receptive with respect to the external world, right? Both of them are potencies and they need objects to actualize them. We can't sense anything unless there are things to be sensed and often an appropriate medium so that if we turn out all the lights and it's nighttime in here, my sense of sight will either not be operative at all or will gradually adjust to what dim light there is and operate much less effectively because there will not be the medium of light required for the colors and shapes of things to impinge upon my senses. So they're receptive in that way, right? Sense needs objects. The intellect needs objects. It needs to have things that it can encounter and engage with and come to know in the world. So both of these things are potencies that are actualized by some interaction with things in the world. There's a similarity there. But the way in which they are receptive of these things in the world and the way in which they come to be actualized by them is quite different for all the reasons given. On the basis of these arguments, given here very briefly, and we'll consider some of them again later, Aristotle will give an argument that the intellect is immaterial. Now notice that that term is a negative term, immaterial, not material. That's the first thing. Notice how careful and in a way safe Aristotle's sort of playing it here. Because he's arguing that if thinking, understanding, is universal in this way, if it apprehends the essence of things and not just their accidents, if it's self-reflective in this way, it must be different from any power that is lodged in a particular corporeal organ. Right? All the senses are lodged in some sort of organ, right? capacities, powers that we have physically. Right? And apart from those, there is no sensitive capacity. So God, properly speaking, and angels, properly speaking, don't sense. Right? because they don't have the corporeal organs to sense. They have higher ways of knowing, which enable them to know everything that we do a lot more easily and a lot more quickly and comprehensively. But they don't, properly speaking, sense because they don't have bodies. 
So all the operations of sense are wedded to, grounded in, certain physical organs, the sense of touch, the sense of taste in the tongue, sense of smell in the nose. We can give very complicated, and Aristotle thinks interesting and reasonable, accounts of the material conditions, necessary material conditions, of all of our acts of sensation. And indeed, without these, we couldn't know anything. But when we do know, according to Aristotle and Aquinas, the conditions of our knowing, that the knowledge is universal, that things are known in their essence, not just in their material accidents, that our knowledge is self-reflective, all of these things indicate that the intellect cannot be limited to a power of a corporeal organ, of the body. Right? That's all we're saying. We're not making some big claim about some mysterious, supernatural, intellectual component. We're not starting off saying there is this separate substance, namely an intellect, like Descartes does. Right? We're simply looking at the objects right, of knowing and comparing those with the objects of sensation and saying, well, all of the powers and capacities of sensation occur in some corporeal organ. But if what we're saying is true of understanding, is actually the case, then it cannot be material. It must be something immaterial. So we have an argument here then for the immateriality of the intellect. And this leads into the final point that I want to discuss, which is where we begin to sense at least the paradox involved in this Aristotelian intimistic conception of human nature. And many people have seen a contradiction. We'll talk about ways that Aquinas and Aristotle give to resolve contradiction. But there is a kind of paradox here. A paradox is not necessarily a contradiction, right? A paradox is two seemingly incompatible truths that have to be held on to in order to get a richer account of things. So we can have paradoxes as long as we show that they're not necessarily contradictions. And that is precisely what Aristotle and Aquinas do with respect to this. But the last point is, given that the intellect is immaterial, that is not limited in its operation to any particular corporeal organ, given that, we have an argument that the intellect is able to be separated from the body, to be separate from the body. In fact, what we're saying up here is that the activity of the intellect is an operation that is not lodged in any particular corporeal organ. It's immaterial. This means that in its operation, it is not dependent upon any particular bodily functions in its operation. Now, what follows from this, and Aristotle considers this issue repeatedly and then at length in Book 3 of the De Anima, what follows from this is a very straightforward argument that we'll have occasion to come back to again later when we get into these more serious difficulties about the union of soul and body with respect to human beings. The argument is this, that whatever has an operation that's proper to itself subsists. That means exists in its own right. And from this principle, if we simply add another premise, we can get the argument that the intellect subsists in its own right. Whatever has an operation in its own right subsists. That is, it can exist on its own. The intellect has an operation in its own right. That is, the intellect has an operation in which the body does not share. Therefore, the intellect subsists. So we have a principle that is taken to be a general truth of physics, right? That whatever has an operation proper to itself can subsist. So human sensing is proper in a way to the composite of soul and body. It's proper to the composite. It's not proper to any particular part so that it cannot exist once there's a separation of soul and body. Once the composite is gone, that capacity is gone. But since the intellect has an operation proper to itself in which the body doesn't share, it can subsist. That means the intellect can exist separately from the body. 
At least that's the argument that Aristotle gives in one point in the De Anima. Aristotle is quick to add the following difficulty to this. Aristotle's view is that we know only because we sense, or not only because, but we know because we sense. That is, the proper objects of human knowledge are the natures of sensible things existing in the world around us. And so even if our discussion of the difference between sensation and knowledge has led us to say that the intellect is immaterial, we still must say that without the senses, without the body, the intellect would have no object to think. Right? The intellect only thinks about things that are given to it through sensation. So there is this dilemma, this paradox, this controversy, this conflict, contradiction, some would say, between these two assertions. One is the intellect thinks only what it can think through sensation. Right? It thinks what is given to us. It thinks about these things differently. That is, it thinks about the essence. It thinks about the things universally as opposed to singularly, etc. But in order for the intellect to have objects to think at all, it needs to have those objects given to it by the sensible world and received by the senses. So in order to have an object, intellect needs sense. It's wedded to sense in this way. But the operation of the intellect itself in thinking about these sensible objects is not itself in any particular material organ. So we have on the one hand the claim intellect needs body. Intellect inseparable from body because it needs bodily things for objects. On the other hand, the operation of the intellect, not its object, but the operation that it performs in knowing these objects, that itself is not material and is subsistent. So we seem to be pulled in two different directions here at the culmination of the De Anima. And one argument about the immaterial of the intellect leads to its subsistence and to a kind of affirmation of the immortality of the intellectual soul, even after it has been separated from the body. But this perplexity remains for any Aristotelian, which is, what could it know at that point? If it needs images, phantasms technically, if it needs those things which are given to it by the body and by the imagination, then what could it know when separated from the body? What would be the objects of its knowledge? So there is this dilemma at the peak of this discussion of human nature in Aristotle's account. And we will come back to this again and again as being the key difficulty, the key paradox. But I think it's right to say that what we need to do is to try and say, yeah, it's a paradox. We need to show how we can hold on to these things at the same time without lapsing into a contradiction. And I've already given some idea of how that is done by Aristotle, namely by saying that it needs the body for the object but the operation itself is not limited to a bodily organ, does not reside in any particular bodily organ. Now a paradox, at least a rich and interesting paradox, presents us with two things that don't seem fully to fit together naturally. And yet, if it's a rich paradox, there are things that we are driven to by our experience, in this case of ourselves as knowing sensible things in the world. And what we want to do is not to develop a systematic account which would say immediately, well, I've got to get rid of that part of my experience because it doesn't seem to jibe with this part. Or I've got to get rid of this part because it doesn't seem to be coincident with this part. What we want to do is to say, all right, these are all truths about our experience of ourselves as knowing. And how do we put these things together? Right? How do we avoid contradiction? How do we save the complexity of human nature without falling into lapsing into some sort of contradiction. That's really the task for Aristotle and Aquinas when it comes especially to talking about the relationship between the intellectual soul and the body. And we will, after having talked in some more detail about human knowledge, we will come back 
to this question and see how Aquinas, in his mature works, attempts to resolve it. At this point, I do want to make a transition from the summary of the main points of Aristotle's De Anima to what we're going to take up for perhaps the bulk, the central part of these lectures, which is the topic of human knowledge and some of the details of that. Aquinas and Aristotle's view on this is very difficult, a lot of technical stuff. I'm going to try and give initially a kind of background to it that will compare, once again, a sort of typically modern approach to human knowledge with an Aristotelian and Thomistic approach. And then we'll get into some of the details of human knowledge and finally come back round again to this vexing issue of soul and body. What I want to say by way of introduction to the topic of human knowledge is the following. And it has to do with the difference between the modern, especially Cartesian, that's the school that follows Descartes, approach to human knowledge, and this earlier Aristotelian and Thomistic approach. One simple way to put this is that the problem in modern philosophy and Descartes is that once we've doubted everything out there, indeed almost everything in here as well, as lacking certitude of the sort that Descartes desires, we are left and burdened with the following problematic. We are left with an isolated ego or mind that's over here and a world over there. And the question is how do we get there from here? Right? Or how do we get here from there? This is the problem, that we seem to be trapped with Descartes in our own mind, a kind of ghost-like mind, because there's really no content to what we know other than I know that I think, right? and therefore I must be. But there's really no content to that thinking. So I'm left with a kind of contentless mind, isolated over here, isolated indeed not just from the rest of the world, but from other individual minds. And so we have what's called in contemporary philosophy the problem of other minds. How do I know that there are such things? It's really a bizarre starting point for philosophy from the perspective of Aristotle and Aquinas. It's also a bizarre starting point to say how do I know there's an external world? Right? You would think if you couldn't affirm that there wouldn't be much else that you could affirm. So we're left with this sort of unbridgeable gap, this attempt to get from my inspection of my private interior thoughts to the richer physical world about me. And it's pretty clear from the various attempts in the history of philosophy that it is nearly impossible to get there from here. For example, you could take Descartes' view, which we've spent some time on, and talk about how you have an ego, the ego cogito, right? the ego, the self, or thinking substance, and then you have the world here. The key is to get, sort of jump from here to here. Very interesting attempts and debates about this. But notice that from an Aristotelian perspective, this whole setup is rather artificial and contrived. For if we start where we ordinarily start, that is if we don't demand of our experience the kind of absolute certitude that Descartes demands of our experience, and it is according to Aristotle a mark of an educated person to know how much certitude we can get from a subject matter and how much we can't so that some subject matters lend themselves to certitude more than others. Mathematics, for example, lends itself to an awful lot of certitude. Ethics doesn't lend itself to the same kind of certitude. Politics even less. So if we give up this rather strained standard of certitude, strained and straining on human intellectual capacity, what we notice is that the natural, less violent way to start out is by starting out saying that there are lots of things that I'm encountering and that I know to varying degrees in the world. And this view of a mind as actively engaging with things 
is the natural starting point for Aristotle and Aquinas. The second point about this is notice that this makes this question of doubt that we've been talking about in Descartes. What severs the relationship between this private self thinking its own thoughts and the external world is doubt. The least possibility of doubt leads me to cut myself off from the external world as lacking the security and certitude that I'd like to have in my knowledge. That that conception of doubt is global for Descartes. That is, it encompasses every possible thing that can be doubted. Now, this too is artificial and rather violent, right? I mean, Descartes knows that it's artificial and violent, and yet he sets about it anyhow. But from the perspective of Aristotle and Aquinas, it's not that doubts don't arise, right? Lots of doubts arise, but they're not global. They're local and temporary. They're local in the sense that they happen not with respect to my relationship to the entirety of the world, but they happen with respect to some apparent confusion in my experience. I'm walking outside and in the sunlight I see someone who looks like a friend. I get a little bit closer, it isn't a friend. In the process of going from thinking it might be a friend to starting to examine a little bit more closely what the person looks like, what his or her features are, I come finally to the judgment, no, it's not Paul, it's not Sandy, it's somebody I don't even know who. And boy am I glad I figured that out before I tapped them on the shoulder and said, how you been? So there's some sort of confusion, some sort of doubt that enters in at a certain point there, but that's a local doubt. That is, it happens here and now, right? I mean, there are more sustained kinds of doubt that occur. I might come to doubt a person whom I trusted, and this might not just be local with respect to this person. It might take place over a long period of time. It might be a group of people. But this, again, is a segment of my experience of other people and of the world that I have doubts about, the veracity of my experience. It is not to put in globally to doubt the fundamental relationship between my mind and the world. Indeed, I've got to sort of presuppose this connection, this foundational connection between the mind and the world, even to begin to doubt. That is, I have to have some things that I am fairly sure about in order to formulate the doubt in the first place. And typically the way I resolve that is not by saying, oh no, it's all going to shreds, how does my mind know anything, but by investigating very particularly what it is that I omitted or I neglected or I now need to look at more carefully, etc. So this relationship of the mind to the world that we've inherited and that Walker Percy thinks is infecting all of late 20th century humanity is rather artificial and violent. It isn't the natural way of thinking about human beings, the ordinary way of thinking about human beings and their knowledge of external things. One other point on this with Descartes and Aristotle is that they each have a first principle. We already know what Descartes is, his foundational statement or principle, I think therefore I am. Right? So long as I am being deceived, it must at least be the case that I'm thinking and that therefore I am. That's Descartes' first principle. Notice that this is a first principle for Descartes, both in the sense that it is the foundation of all other knowledge and in the sense that it must be known first in time. So it's a first principle in the sense that it's the foundation. It's that from which everything else comes. It also must be known first in time for Descartes. That is, until I arrive at this, Everything else is dubitable. This is the first indubitable thing, truth, upon which I can begin to build other knowledge. So it's first in time, not just first as a foundation. It's first in time, and it is utterly private. That is, in order to know the truth, this foundational truth, I have to have cut myself off from the entire external world and from all other human beings. I don't know when I affirm this whether there are external things or whether there are other human beings. So it is, and in Descartes' argument here, it is entirely a kind of private monologue in which the argument is conducted. Now let's compare that briefly with Aristotle's first principle. Now, Aristotle's first principle is a little bit harder 
to get a handle on. It runs this way. I mean, you put it technically. The same thing cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Take this board here, this white board, not a black board, writing with black on it. And I can say about it, it's white. Right? It's a white board. So someone would say, well, no, it's black. I'd say, well, wait a minute here. What are we going to say about that? In a sense, at least the portions that I've covered with the black marker, right? those portions of the board are now black. The rest of it is white. But to say it's both black and white is not to violate this so-called principle of contradiction. Right? Because notice what it says. It said the same thing cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. So in the same respect here would mean what? It isn't both black and white in the same places. It is black in some places and white in others. So saying that it's both black and white doesn't violate this principle of contradiction. Right? I would have to say, well, it's black in those places where I have written with the black marker on the board. It's white everywhere else, unless somebody else has smudged it up or written on it before I have. So it's a sort of fundamental principle of contradiction, as Aristotle puts it, that we can't both assert something and take it back at the same time and in the same respect. At the same time is an obvious clarifying part of this principle as well, right? Because it might be that today this is white, and tomorrow, if I were to come back and stand in front of the same board, it could be black if someone had painted it overnight and made it black, right? So someone could say, well, it's both black and white, but not at the same time. That would be not at the same time. Otherwise, what we have up here is a situation where it's both black and white, but not in the same respect. So to say that the tip of this marker is both black and white at the same time, the marker, of course, has a kind of white covering to it, but the tip, that which, which I write and which makes the black marks up here, to say that that's both black and white at the same time would be bizarre. Okay. I mean, we can talk about prisms and white light having potentially all the other colors. That's more complicated. I'm simply talking about the initial vague apprehension of the thing that is not really left behind even when we do that work more technically in science, that I cannot say that this is both what it is and its opposite at the same time. First principle for Aristotle. Why is it first? In what sense is it first? It's a first principle because every statement that I make presupposes it. Doesn't mean that this is the first thing that a baby says, right? Can't both be and not be. Doesn't mean that it's the first principle in the sense the first thing we learn. Indeed, Descartes is not like that either. But for Aristotle, this is not the first principle that I come to know. In fact, this is studied in metaphysics. In book four of Aristotle's metaphysics, this principle is introduced and defended. And that's the last study in philosophy. Right? So Aristotle's saying it's first in the sense that it's been implicitly operative. Whenever I make a statement, this is such and such, I'm not saying this is such and such and its opposite at the same time and in the same respect. I can't be contradicting myself or my speech is meaningless. Notice as well that for Aristotle, this is not merely about my private interior mind. It's about the world and the way I know the world. So the principle itself seems to implicitly presuppose this connection between thought and the world that we've said is characteristic of Aristotle and Aquinas. So it's not first in time. It's not utterly private. And indeed, the interesting thing about the context in which Aristotle defends this, we notice that Descartes goes apart from all others and has this kind of monologue, is that Aristotle proposes to consider a dialogue with someone who is denying this principle. Says, well, OK, go ahead and deny it. I can't prove to you that you must accept this principle, because it's a first principle. And if something's absolutely first, there's nothing prior to it. So you can't appeal to anything prior in order to prove it, right? Just as Descartes can't appeal to anything prior here in order to prove this. It's simply the experience of it, the knowledge of it, that Descartes appeals to. Same thing down here. Once you understand what this means, Aristotle's view is you have to affirm it. You have to accept it. What happens if you don't? Well, go ahead and try to object. What do you say as an interlocutor in this dialogue 
with Aristotle. You say to him, this principle is false, or something like that. Right? That's the simplest way to put it. This principle is false. And Aristotle asks you then, what is the meaning of that statement you just made? What is the significance of it? This principle is false. Are you saying that it could be both false and true at the same time? No, because you want to deny the principle, so you're saying it's false. So Aristotle's argument is here that in my very act, if I want to be churlish and attempt to deny this principle, in my very articulation of my objection, I have presupposed the principle. right? Because I have presupposed that what I am asserting means a certain thing and not its opposite. It doesn't mean that language can't be metaphorical and so forth, but when I'm making a statement in an argument, what I've got to say here is that it means a certain thing and not another. So the refutation here is in dialogue. The person who disagrees with it in his very act of disagreeing assumes the principle. Therefore, it's a principle that we all must implicitly share in knowing and talking about anything. So this is quite different from Descartes' first principle. And we can see here then that the starting point, the relationship between mind and world, and then finally, this view of the first principle and the way it's a principle, the way it's understood to be first, whether I'm separate from the world and from others, or whether I consider myself to be articulating a principle that we all somehow already hold implicitly in common and simply need to have it articulated for us. These are dramatically different alternatives in our conception of human knowledge. And the alternative, the Aristotelian alternative, the Thomistic alternative, is what we will be spending a large part of our next two lectures. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.